that kind of good naturedly banter over a bunch of different issues from from how uh, what sort of events to hold in here to like how to make a donut well. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, everyone, and welcome back to No Script, an unscripted conversation about theater's best scripts. I am Jackson Nikolai. I am Jacob Mann Christensen. We're so thrilled that you joined us this week. And as always, we're thrilled about the script that we get to talk about. Yeah, yeah, I'm I'm really excited. We we kind of commented briefly before we started the podcast. I was like, man, these last two plays are real nice plays. Yeah, <laughs> last week we talked about the Sarah Rule play for Peter Pan on her 70th birthday. If you haven't tuned into that one, you should go back and listen to that one. You should also just read the play, see the play, experience it somehow because yeah. it's a lovely, lovely play. And then we get to do Superior Donuts, which is different, maybe not quite as heartwarming family yeah, yeah. Uh, as as the Sarah Rule play was but superior donuts by tracy letts is a charming little play in and of itself it is i'm really excited to get into it because it's just like some really nice like (laughs) nice seems like such a shallow thing to say about characters but they are (laughs) they're nice (laughs) so i'm excited to get to get to kind of go 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 through that and like I mean, it's set in a donut shop. What's not to like about a place set in a donut shop? It is set in a donut shop. Superior Donuts is just the name of the donut shop. If you if you ever <laughs> wonder why they title it this one, it's easy to know. Uh huh. <laughs> it will come up throughout the play too. Like we don't have to like hunt down the one time they use a phrase for the title of the play. That's right. There will be no ten minute discussion this podcast. Now, why do you think the playwright chose this title? <laughs> Superior <for> Donuts. <laughs> <laughs> but before we get into our discussion, we do want to ask all of you to please head on over to patreon.com slash no script podcast. We know many of you already have, and we're so thankful for the folks that are over there supporting us on Patreon. But if you haven't yet, please consider going to patreon.com slash no script podcast. There you can become a supporter of the show. There's various monthly levels, the lowest of which is just $1 a month. And even at the $1 a month level, you're hugely helpful to us being able to continue to do the podcast. We love this. It's something that we're passionate about. It's something that we're excited to do week to week. It's just not free. And so we're hoping that you'll be able to help us out with the costs of running the show. There's hosting costs, script buying costs uh, for anything that we can't get at the local library. Plus, there's a significant time investment on our part. So we're asking you to support the show. Head on over patreon.com slash no script podcast. If you become a supporter, you'll be able to access patron only posts over there. Yeah, yeah. And like, like Jacob said, even that $1 amount is just, it super helps out the show. So thank you to everyone who's done that. Thank you to everyone who's done the producer level where we like say your name at the top of the show for the producer credit. So thank you so much to all of you who are helping to support this podcast and keep it running. We'll see you over there at patreon.com slash no script podcast. And now back to the script. Back to the script. We like to contextualize things just a little bit at the start of each of these plays. So I'm going to give that to you real quick. Uh, Superior Donuts, written by Tracy Letts, um, was first produced at Steppenwolf uh, Theater Company, which is one of our favorites, in Chicago in 2008. And that production was directed by Tina Landau. 
Um, it then uh, moved on to Broadway pretty quickly. In uh, 2009, it made its transition to Broadway, and then it had quite a bit of uh, regional theater uh, appeal throughout. And I think I think you'll see through our conversation why this play has so much regional theater appeal. It's just a good play for, for houses to do. Um, it, it, it ran a couple other times. My, my list of, uh, of uh, dates that it ran uh, ends in 2013, but I imagine it, it continued on in regional houses after that. Uh, it did, notably, we discovered uh, as we were doing research at the, at the top of the show, it had a, a TV series run, which looks really fun. Yeah, you should um, watch the trailer. It looks kind yeah. of funny. It, it's not really based on the plot of the play in a specific way, only yeah. a sort of generalized look at the situation of the play, which is this donut shop in Chicago. And the characters are there by name. Without mm-hmm. having seen the show, it's hard to know how much of their identities that Tracy Litz created in this play carry over into the show. Right, right. <laughs> that that show ran from uh, 2016 to 2018, and I'm I think you're right in saying it's kind of loosely based upon the characters of this play. Um, not really sure how much of it is exact play rendition, but uh, it's it's had quite a few productions. It's it's a recent play produced, you know, in the last ten years. So so I, I'm I'm excited to get to jump into it. If you are wondering where you've heard Tracy Letts before, it is a playwright that we, he is a playwright that we've come to in an earlier season. We talked about his play August Osage County, which was of course a uh, America-wide, worldwide phenomena of a play. And this is the play that immediately follows August Osage County in his playwriting career. In fact, you can watch interviews where he talks about uh, sort of the joy. He's a playwright who in the interviews it seems like he really takes joy in the writing of plays which is a great thing for a playwright to do <laughs> fortunately and, and yeah and, and he so he talks about how great it was to sit down after all the i think he says hoopla i think that's the word he uses the hoopla of august osage county and just get back to work churning out another play and another charming love well i wouldn't describe august osage county yeah. as charming that may not say, be a correct yeah. adjective for that show yeah this one feels like a gear shift like oh, i'm gonna take <laughs> i'm gonna take a little bit of a break from that headspace write a play about a donut shop in chicago Interestingly, in the one of the interviews, he talked about how he, he, you know, he came back to write Superior Donuts after August, partially because he wanted to write a play that just wasn't so personal, that wasn't so <laughs> heavily investment that that it required from him. And then he said, and then I learned that that's just not possible. That every play <laughs> is deeply personal for me and requires a lot of investment. And we may look at some of those places where the play does come up and touch some some pretty important things, some pretty uh, hit home kind of stuff. In terms of the synopsis, I'm just going to go ahead and spoil the whole thing for you. So if you haven't read it and you want to before the conversation, now's a good time to stop this podcast, read the play, see the play, whatever, and then come back to us at a later time. But it is set in a donut shop. We've said that a couple of times. Superior Donuts, located in the uptown neighborhood of Chicago. Notably, this is Tracy Lett's first play that he's ever set in Chicago, where he lives. So he, one of the things he talked about in interviews was also how excited he was to write a Chicago play. And the character of Chicago comes into the play a number of times. The donut shop is run by Arthur Shervashevsky. He is, uh, the the thing at the beginning of the script says, a 59-year-old Polish-American. He inherited the donut shop from his parents who were immigrants who came to America, started this donut shop, and that was their livelihood, and he inherited it. 
and now he runs it. And the donut shop is falling apart. It is old. It's been around, obviously, for forever. It is also the only donut shop in that part of Chicago, the only independently run donut shop. Tracy Lutz talks about how in the research for the play, he was so interested and and sort of concerned to learn that in, I think he said something like the north side of Chicago, there are no independently run donut shops or bakeries anymore. And uh, so that's an interesting part of the story as well. So he runs this donut shop. The play opens with the donut shop having been vandalized. Uh, Pretty nasty word is written across the wall in spray paint. Things are broken into. Uh, The police are there investigating. Arthur discovers what's happened. Eventually, he closes the donut shop to get it repaired. And at that point, a person named Franco Wicks, 21 years old, he arrives. Franco's black. He arrives because Arthur's former assistant has quit, or I don't know if assistant is right for it. Former shopkeep has quit, and so Franco is there to apply for the position. They back and forth for a while. Eventually, Franco gets the job, and then most of the rest of the play is Arthur and Franco's relationship. Some of the more notable things that happen are that Franco encourages Arthur, who's a widower, to ask out the lady cop that's uh, hanging around the donut shop all the time that is clearly interested in him, in Arthur. Um, And Franco, we learn, is deep in debt for gambling on sports games, and he's being threatened by the folks that he owes money to, that he needs to come up with the money now. Uh, Franco also has written what he calls the great American novel. Arthur, who we learn is a fairly prolific reader, reads the novel and loves it, thinks it should get published. Uh, Then in sort of the culminating moments of the play, Franco, because he's unable to pay his debts, has a couple of his fingers lopped off, not on stage, fortunately, by the folks that he owes money to. Arthur sells the donut shop to a neighbor in order to get the money to pay Franco's debts back. The, The gambling mob, I guess, they destroy Franco's books. Uh, and Franco returns to the donut shop. Arthur's tried to befriend him. He's put all this money on the line for him, and Arthur tries to get Franco to start his novel again. That's the basic sweep of the plot. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. That It's kind of a, a quick ending at the end there, too. Like, you don't get the sense that the, the, the story's necessarily over. There's a lot more left that could go on. You you find out some fun things about character th- characters through different means in this play too throughout space throughout the play at least for arthur are these like storytelling flashback scenes um where he's uh revealing information about himself about his past we learned about his parents that they own the shop this way and it's and it's like it's a nice kind of the lights change or the scripts call for the lights to change and uh you to kind of experience a bit of storytelling in the middle of this play too Right. They're monologues, basically long monologues where Arthur tells the story of his life, his parents, how they came to America, started the donut shop, how they were running the donut shop through all the Chicago race riots, how Arthur got caught up in that. And then this was during the Vietnam War. Eventually, Arthur is drafted and he be, he moves to Canada to become uh, what he calls a draft evader. Right. Which is a fascinating description. He says, it's different than draft resistors or draft dodgers. We, we draft evaders, we evade. Right. So he right. ran to uh, Toronto and, you know, started writing about how terrible the war is. But with all these years of time, he's able to look back and reflect, you know, we, I think maybe we did think that the war was immoral, but a lot of it was just that we were scared. Mm-hmm. I think that that revelation that he tells in that scene is is pretty telling for for his arc as a character. Like 
fear is involved in Arthur, um, and it, fear is one of the big things that he ends up needing to overcome and 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 grapple with throughout this play because i mean he faces fear from a bunch of different angles we find out a lot of complication in his life over he his his wife who he is now estranged from his ex-wife recently died of cancer we find out um we have his his neighbor like constantly wants him to buy or to sell his shop to to him so that he can kind of like consolidate this block with his tech company that he's building up here in, in Northside Chicago. Um, yeah, Arthur's a very uh, afraid individual. This kind of comes to a head, I think, maybe for the character or, or at least in how he tells the story when he talks about this is the very, very end of Act One. And Arthur talks about finally being able to come home when the president invited the folks that had dodged the draft to come back to America. He's finally able to come home and he's finally able to visit the grave of his father. He couldn't come back for his father's funeral because he would have been arrested for dodging the draft. And actually he talks about that there were like agents at the funeral looking for him. So anyway, he's finally able to come back. This is again in one of those long monologues where he tells the story of his life. And he comes back to his father's grave and he reflects on the last thing his father ever said to him, presumably in relation to him choosing to move to Canada and avoid the draft. I think we're meant to make that connection. But the last thing his father said to him was coward. You're yeah. a coward. And that's the end of Act One. That's the last line. You're a coward. So that that there's a lot of weight put on that phrase. You're a coward. And uh, I think that the the argument is there that in a lot of ways Arthur is a coward and the 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 cowardice or the fear has led to stagnancy in Superior Donuts the shop in his life. Yeah, and and to the point that we see we I mean we see a couple different instances playing out. The other big one that comes to mind is he and he and Franco have this great back and forth around the book. Uh uh Arthur takes the book home, reads it, says it's awesome. And uh, Franco asks him, do you know any publishing people? <laughs> and like right away wants to give it to publishing. Um, Arthur says no at first, but then eventually he like comes back and says like, I, I forget the exact relation. It was like my, my, my wife's brother's wife's partner or something like that. Something, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, a, a connection far, far away from him used to write for a free paper and he wrote like recipes for the free paper or something <laughs> like that. <laughs> But Franco like latches onto it and and they they it's this lovely scene. They start like spinning a dream for the coffee shop if if Franco can get this book published uh, for the donut shop, if, if he can get it published. And uh, but then they hit a block and eventually uh, Arthur starts to kind of break down that dream, trying to like tame some of Franco's excitement. No, he, he says, knowing that it will eventually fail. And so that fear, again, is kind of getting drummed up in Arthur, even even in the moments when he's starting to click with Franco. Yeah, that's kind of the climactic argument that it takes every, th- every of the little arguments that they've had through the play. They're very different worldviews and puts them... Uh, right to a head where they're imagining a future for Superior Donuts and Franco takes it one step too far because he doesn't just imagine a future for Superior Donuts. He also imagines, and then Arthur, you're going to marry that cop and your daughter is going to come back and she's going to live with you. And that 
imagination moment goes one step too far for Arthur. One step past what he's willing to imagine. Mm-hmm. Let's talk, perhaps, Jackson, about the differing worldviews of Arthur and Franco, because that's a lot of the play, right? Arthur, his worldview is, I think, is stagnancy, right? It's safe to never change. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's kind of a it's it's like the odd couple, but with an extra power dynamic of of, of a boss, <laughs> like <laughs> the odd couple set in a donut shop. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, yeah. I agree. Arthur kind of has this this hesitancy. This maybe the carefulness would be a, a more positive way to spin things. He's just careful. <laughs> um, uh, he's 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 he doesn't want to overextend. Cautious, yeah, yeah, yeah. Overcautious. Uh, Franco is an idealist. Um, Franco comes in with a lot of dreams. He has a lot of ideas. He doesn't even. His interview, you can't see my air quotes, but I'm doing the air quotes. His interview (laughs) for the job is basically him telling Arthur how he should run the shop. (laughs) <laughs> well, and, and and it's not just you're doing it wrong. Here's the right way to do it. It's here's all the things we can change about the shop. It could become sort of a hip place for poetry readings and yeah. we could have music going all the time. And here's how we could redecorate. So the the imagining of the shop is is changing lots of the things that has made Arthur very comfortable. And the shop, the donut shop itself, I think is the place. And of course, this is how it is because Tracy Letts crafted these two employees of the shop against each other. They use the shop to define their worldview. So for Arthur, the, he doesn't want any music. He he doesn't want any poetry readings. He wants to do his his dough every night at night. Get up, produce the donuts have the same kind of customers come in. He doesn't want to try to encourage people to buy anything more. He just wants it to be as it's always been because it's comfortable for him. And Franco, this is the exact opposite. He has all kinds of dreams about all the things that they could do differently. Yeah, yeah. He just like, uh, right, right from the beginning, his kind of optimism hits against Arthur's kind of pessimism. <laughs> Um, and, 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 and it's just interesting to kind of watch as though it's like two magnets throughout this play. They're, they're, they're around each other and they have a similarity and they're, they kind of like each other, but they just keep pushing off each other throughout this whole play as they, they kind of good naturedly banter over a bunch of different issues from, from how, uh, what sort of events to hold in here to like how to make a donut well. (laughs) (laughs) And Franco's novel, the character doesn't know at the time, and actually we don't know at the time as they describe it, we only know later, is, is, is somewhat autobiographical. Uh, we know that the, one of the main characters in the novel is involved in gambling, especially horse gambling, which is, we think, how Franco got started in the gambling world. Um, and so there's this moment when they're discussing the novel and they talk about this catchphrase that the main character of the novel's father always tells him or something like that. And it's something to the effect of never stop moving. Mm-hmm. which is sort of a way to say never stop hustling, never stop trying to get the next thing going, never stop changing, never stop looking for something better, never stop moving. And, yeah. you know, that that is Franco, right? Never stop moving. In fact, I suspect an actor playing Franco would want to be just constantly finding ways to move because <laughs> yep. that's who he is. He's just full of energy. He's always got something going on, always got an idea going on, always got an angle going on. And Arthur's worldview is is more like never start moving. Right. <laughs> Things are fine. It's just, fine that I'm depressed all day, every day. It's fine right. that I'm losing money on this donut shop because I'm 
closed half the week because I don't want to get out of bed. It's yep. fine that my ex-wife who left me and took my daughter and I never saw her again just died of cancer. It's fine that that all this stuff is going on. It's fine that I don't pay any attention to the advances of this this woman who comes in and is clearly interested in me. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> and 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 eventually that I, that kind of starts to rub Franco a little bit wrong, and and some of it's funny, um, but I wonder if some of it is also the spot that Franco is in. Franco is deeply in debt to people who used to be uh his employers, kind of, sort of, at least their relationship seems to be pretty familiar. Um, uh, yeah, we get, I think the story is that when Franco was a young person, maybe a younger teenager, he's 21 now, um, that when he was a young teenager or an adolescent, perhaps, he used to run horse bets, which means that he would find the people in the stands and go run and make their bet for them so they didn't have to leave the races. So he got started gambling early. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and that relationship kind of turned into his own trap then. Eventually, he started betting, he got into so far, and he starts the play in $16,000 of debt um, to to uh, to Luther, uh, who, who comes in eventually. to make it 32. <laughs> yeah, and like his, <laughs> yeah. $16,000 in debt, and when they ask, where's our money, one of the first things he says is, let me go double or nothing. Right. <laughs> what? <laughs> like, oh, oh, boy. <laughs> Even Luther, the person who would probably want to put him in the hole that much, is like, oh, oh, no. No, you don't want to do that. <laughs> Can't have that, bud. No yeah. way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So some of it, though, is that is that kind of, I, I one way to play some of Franco's energy in these in these scenes would be like he wants this shop to succeed. He needs this shop to succeed because it's where he has his job. He's finally got a job, and he's he's he, we find out he's dropped out of school. He's needing to pay this debt back before he can keep going to school, presumably to write more. Wow. So I think that that's an interesting question, Jackson. Let's let's bury in a little bit here. Yeah, yeah. What in the world is Franco doing at this donut shop? <laughs> uh, ostensibly, his claim is that you know he's got this debt to pay back, so he needs to figure out a way to pay back the money. But he's making minimum wage, working less than full time, and pretty much ever he never acknowledges this because that it would go against his goals to acknowledge it. But pretty much everybody around him acknowledges like you're never going to make enough money to pay back this debt, right? Because even at the beginning of his hiring, he does the math on how much he would make during a year, and it comes out to whatever, 11000 It's like $11,000. Something yeah. like that. Even if he gave every cent of that, it's not the whole debt within a year, which is a, you know, a huge amount of time to owe that much money to dangerous people. Mm-hmm. But we know that he doesn't. We know that he supports. You know, So if all $11,000, that's no money for apartments, no money for food, no money for anything. So he has to live on that money somehow. But also he supports his mother and sister. Right. So he's not giving all of that money to the you know these dangerous folks even in the best circumstance. Yeah. <laughs> so you know when when they come around asking for their sixteen k, he's got like a couple hundred bucks. Right. So what? Why is this a good idea? It's <laughs> a great question. I mean, you you get you get one line from him kind of early on in the play that he walks by this spot every day. Um, he's or he he said he used to walk by this spot every day. Um. He also says that he pretty much had never come in there because he doesn't eat those crappy donuts. (laughs) I don't eat no nasty-ass donuts. I think that's what he says. Yeah. Um, 
but but there's something to be said about it being kind of in the neighborhood, um, in his neighborhood. Neighborhood in general in this play is is its own theme. The, the there's people regulars who come into the shop all the time. The next door neighbor, uh, we've brought up already is Max. Uh, Lady Boyle is uh, a homeless woman who will come into the shop for donuts every once in a while. The cops stop in frequently. So I wonder if it's something to do with that. Like he he knows he needs to stop and and stop school and take a job. But he's he he's kind of wanting to stay within his 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 known world for a little while longer, his support group for a little while longer. I think there's also this element of hiding, right? When when Luther finally finds him, it's only by happenstance. And he comes and visits him and says, You've been dodging me for forever. You weren't down at the club. We didn't know where you were. What's been going on? And of course, uh, Franco goes, you know, I wasn't dodging you, man. I've been here. I've been trying to make money to pay back my debt, blah, blah, blah. But, you know, he comes into the shop and just like you said, he makes this whole big deal about how nobody ever comes into the shop. Right. He's never been into this donut shop. None of the people <laughs> he knows have ever been into the donut shop. And so finding a place to keep his head down, it seems important to him right away. Now, what happens when they finally do discover him? Then he's stuck, Right. He's right. stuck having to stay. That's a good point. I hadn't thought about it as as like a you know, he he left somewhere, right? Like he left his his normal circle of people to come back to here. Um and and that that's true. Like it, this would be this would be a good place to hide. Like no one comes in, he can just like clean the shop and have ideas for a while and and wait till someone wait till he makes enough money to pay back the the debt that he owes. Which is never going to happen, as nope. we've said. So it and he's described as this person that always has another angle. You know, when Luther comes in to see him about the debt, he's like, weren't you, didn't you used to be like trying to figure out how to make money off of gold or something? <laughs> yeah. You've always got these crazy ideas. And w- what is interesting to me is that Franco doesn't really have many crazy money-making ideas through the course of this play, at least as far as we get to know him. He's working to make money at the donut shop. He tries initially to get employee bonuses and such if he does a good job, but that doesn't really work. And then after that, the only real money-making scheme that I can see is the novel. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, 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 I mean, that, that one certainly gets most of his energy about midway through the play. <laughs> Pretty early in the play, he loses a bet to uh, Arthur, to, he he kind of tries to tempt Arthur into reading it, but Arthur says something to offend him, and then he like takes the book away and doesn't want him to read it. So Arthur rebets against him to to try to read the the book and wins the bet. Um, and uh, so so that happens fairly early on in the play, and then to, with that success, with Arthur liking it, that seems to like get the most of his energy. Um, to the point that he becomes kind of fixated on the book. We find out. Uh, that from Luther, I think, or through some grapevine that in kind of the last negotiation before his fingers get cut off at the end of the play, he tries to sell the book to Luther and Kevin, which just makes zero sense. (laughs) It's like, why, why would they buy this book from you? Oh Um, yeah. It's, you know, it's desperation. It's like, I've written the great American novel. You can sell this for so much money. It was interesting. As I was preparing for this podcast, I was also, I was reading a different book just for fun. And in the book, 
uh, somebody, there's a whole discussion about how how poorly the sales are going in the world for like literary books, literary novels. Yeah. And so it was funny to have the juxtaposition of like, as I was reading one thing, somebody's talking about how you can't make money writing just literature anymore, like highbrow <laughs> novel-esque literature. And on mm. the other hand, having Franco like, I'm going to make so much money when I get my novel published. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yep. But he, he he does have this kind of fixation thing. Like he he when when he hits on an idea, he'll stick with the idea until it kind of stops. Like he learns how to make donuts. Like he doggedly Arthur does not want him to make donuts at first. Like he's like, no no no, you're you're out front. I'm making the donuts. Um, but by the, by the middle part of the play, he's in the back, like having completed making the dough and is <laughs> trying to fry donuts correctly. <laughs> <laughs> he succeeds eventually. Eventually, yeah yeah. So here's something that I think is a little bit interesting, Jackson. We've talked now for, what, we're, we're approaching half an hour of discussion. And other than the one time I said it in the synopsis, this is something that has not come up. Arthur's shop was broken into at the yeah. beginning of the play. What in the world does that have to do with anything? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um... That's a great question. Um, I mean, it certainly uh, involves some of the uh, characters who we haven't talked about much. The reason the cops are around as much as they are, there's Officer Randy, who's the the woman who's interested in Arthur, at least according to Franco, and we find out through the play that she is. Um, uh, And then Officer James is another character who comes in and in some ways, mostly deals with exposition. Uh, he kind of helps uh, unravel some of the mysteries of the play. Um, but he's also like a Trekkie fan. He's a great character. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so he comes I'll in fun. in a Captain Kirk outfit. Um, but uh, so in, in some ways that that justifies their presence. I, I wonder if, too, though, it tells us something more about Arthur. Um, I think it, it begins to un- unwrap more of Arthur's character right away. Uh, we, I mean, someone broke into his shop like spray painted his wall with an obscenity and he's just kind of fine with it. (laughs) (laughs) Like he's not outraged. Max, his next door neighbor who wants to buy his shop is more outraged about it than he is. (laughs) He's he's just like, no, it's fine. You don't have to look into it. That's fine. (laughs) So that, that, that ambivalence comes off right away. Like we open the play with this, this, this uh, vandalism, this break in, um, and and there's no reaction from him. He's he's just deadpan. Yeah, it, it's a it's it's certainly a pretty effective way to introduce Arthur's apathy, his yeah. stagnancy. Right, is that something so severe has happened? The shop was broken into. Windows are broken. Doors are broken. The counter's broken. There's a big terrible word written on the wall in red spray paint. And you're right. He doesn't, it does not seem to be an emergency to him. In fact, I think the first thing he says when he walks in is like, y'all want some coffee or something yeah. like that, you know? <laughs> and, yeah. and so it functions on that level. For a play that uses the shop so strongly as a metaphor for Arthur's internal life, you wonder if Tracy Letts isn't trying to begin the play with some sort of assault on Arthur's internal life. Hmm. The you know, so there's some sort of metaphorical relationship between the thing that's happened to the shop and something that would have happened in Arthur's world outside of the shop. Problem is I'm not totally sure what that is. 
Is it the the recent death of his ex-wife that is sort of uh, the symbolically related to the fact that the shop has been so vandalized? I'm not sure what else would represent such a powerful intrusion into Arthur's inner sanctum. Sure, sure. I wonder if it's just like that. I, I really like this idea. I really like the idea that we we watch the emotional health of Arthur through the shop through this play. Um, if you if, if you view the break-in as like the cherry on top, just kind of like the next thing, which seems to be the way that Arthur treats the break-in, then it kind of makes sense. Like the shop hasn't been doing well in ages. Max has been trying to buy it from him for ages, and like there's nothing there's nothing successful about the shop necessarily. His last manager uh, had a terrible relationship with him, and they left in an argument, and he fired him. So this is just like the next thing, kind of. If you view it that way, then it's just like this is the point to which we have sunk. <laughs> we're we're here now, and then we watch the play through the play as it slowly uh, is is kind of repaired through the influence of Franco. <laughs> like there's one scene where it's it's actually is during the monologue that Arthur is giving about his past. Franco's in the background, moving the whole time, cleaning up the <laughs> cleaning up the shop and painting over the the spray paint on the wall. I think that's really interesting that. That the shops uh, break the the fact that the shop has been so vandalized is not intended to be any kind of a beginning to the journey of the play. Uh, you know, it's not the inciting incident. It's such a strong beginning to the script that you feel like it should have more of a relationship to the journey and the action of what occurs, but it doesn't really. You know, it happens, it's mentioned one other time, and then it's mentioned very briefly at the end of the script. But what it does do is establish the regular world of Arthur. It sets up how low things have sunk. We're to the bottom of the bottom now in Arthur's life where so much is depressing him that he can't even muster the energy to be concerned about the fact that his shop is vandalized. The shop itself is doing so poorly that it doesn't seem to phase Arthur that it's also been vandalized. This is just the next thing that happens in the terrible world of Arthur's life. And so if that were the world Arthur were going to continue in, you can see the well, the writing on the wall. Right? Yeah, I mean, yeah. <laughs> you can see where this is headed. Arthur's severely depressed. Nothing in his life is going well. His shop is now vandalized. You know, the things are not going to turn out well in right. that situation. So what happens is a stranger comes to town yes. to make things better, <laughs> to make better of this terrible world that we begin the play in. Yeah, I like that. I think I, Franco as the inciting incident, I think is is the stronger choice for 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 what causes this play to happen. Um, I I think we just watch we watch a very different play if the if the break in is the inciting incident. Really, anything could have happened after that. But Franco like starts this play off in a different direction, moves us that way, and we get. I mean, we watch uh, if if the shop is the emotional health of Arthur, he lets it go at the end. Like it gets to the point that he gives it away for someone else's sake at the end of the play. Like that's that's a powerful journey from from the beginning of this this low state of of kind of this morass of what life has been to this, ultimately a sacrifice at the end of the play. That's right. Yeah, and and so the relationship of the shop to Arthur's desire to sort of remain stagnant, then when the time comes and he has to choose. Are things going to change for the sake of Franco 
or or and myself also or am i going to just let this happen to him move on as if nothing ever changed and just continue to run my donut shop that's the choice presented to him mm-hmm. and we know how he chooses i think that choice is such a powerful one too cuz there's nothing necessarily behooving him to do it like and and of course i mean that's the nature of a sacrifice but still it's a powerful sacrifice in this play i mean you know, finding out that Franco has messed up and has his fingers chopped off and, and you know, has to pay back a bunch of debt, that that's something for care. You know, like you could you could still be in a caring friendship relationship with someone and be like, I'll be around and support you. But no, no, he d- takes it on himself to sell what he what he loves, what his family has had for generations to to help out. To, to have some responsibility around that. Right. And so because he makes that choice, the options are that Arthur is the best, most selfless human being, the most <laughs> or... angel of a person forever, <laughs> gives up his entire livelihood, everything he's known, everything he wants uh-huh. for the sake of someone else, an employee. Yeah. Or there also are some personal stakes in him deciding to do this. So what does Arthur benefit from choosing to give away the shop. Hmm. Um I don't know. <laughs> like, I don't know that there's 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 not much uh I mean he gets he gets a, a, a okay price for the place. Um I think I think what he gets is the relationship continuing though with Franco. Um the the last scene is is him intentionally sitting down and saying, We're gonna essentially, we're gonna rewrite your book. <laughs> Start. Yeah, I think it's notable that right before Arthur makes this decision, he has some time without Franco around. They've they've had this argument. We've discussed the sort of the the culmination of their arguments all comes together. They're trying. Uh, uh, Franco's book is so good, and they're imagining what oh, all this great stuff that could happen. And Franco takes it one step too far and involves Arthur's family, which he's been very hesitant to talk about and have any kind of uh, emotional connection to what's going on in his family's life at all. So Franco takes it that one step too far. The argument sort of explodes. Arthur calls him childish or something. That good things never happen. Yeah. We shouldn't be dreaming. All Insults this blah, blah, blah. Yeah, the yeah. the the worldviews really come to a final head. Franco runs out, and then Arthur, then time shifts. And Arthur, we get Arthur on a phone call saying, yeah, you haven't been around in the shop a few days, just wondering if you're coming back, what's going on. So we know that Arthur has now had to go back to the way things used to be for some time. Mm-hmm. And so he gets to re-experience, well, if I... If I just decided to live my life the way I'd always been living it before this person came around and encouraged me to live my life in a different way, if I just went back to the way things were, this is what it would be like. And Mm -hmm. so that's the choice presented to him. He has a real firsthand experience of, if I just ignored this and went on with everything else, this is what it's going to be like. And he finds that world lacking. Mm-hmm. I yeah yeah I think that's the biggest deal towards I mean again if he's not just an altruist angel um <laughs> that's that's the biggest thing he has to gain is that that he hopes and it's it's not necessarily clear at the end of the play but he hopes that uh, Franco will accept this gift that he gives him and that they'll continue to be friends by the uh, post post the events of the play and. 
ultimately, even if that didn't happen, even if Franco said, I never wanted this money from you. I'm so embarrassed. I'm so upset now about losing these fingers. All this stuff. I'm, I don't want to be <laughs> friends anymore. I don't want to come back. Even if the, that sort of worst case scenario had happened, Arthur has still put him a position, himself in a position where he's going to have to change. Mm-hmm. The shop is sold now. There's no going back. Something in Arthur's life is going to have to move forward. What's the other thing that Arthur has also done to change something in his life? His relationship with Randy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. He's he's. Uh, in, I think it's even in that time when when Franco is gone, he like follows the advice of Franco in his absence. <laughs> he he like <laughs> follows up on a date with uh, Randy, and um, yeah, he's he's made steps in that direction. He's kind of committed to to that path. I think the other big commitment he's made is. We, to overcome his fear, uh, to bring it back to the fear again. And, and, and it's very tangible in this play, in, in a physical fight between him and Luther. Like, he, he has to put his feet on the line by the end of the play. And, of course, this pays off some of the story we've been learning about his history in dodging the draft right? Dodging this serious physical conflict. And now when the time comes, it, it's really interesting and weird how uh-huh. Tracy Letts sets up this physical confrontation. So um, Luther and who's the other guy? Kevin. Luther mm-hmm. and Kevin, the two representatives of this gambling mob, show up because Arthur's called them and they show up to get their money. And so Arthur gives them this money in a box and they count it and it's the right amount of money. And Arthur says, okay, you got your money, right? There's no no other debts. There's nothing else. You're done with Franco. You've got your money. They say, yes, we have. And Arthur says, okay, so whatever else happens, you've <laughs> got your money. And they kind of go, yeah, (laughs) sure. (laughs) what else is going to (laughs) happen? And Arthur says, okay, we're not done. I'm going to fight you. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) There's not, like, the situation is not forced by anything other than Arthur's willpower just to say, I'm going to fight you. (laughs) Well, and then Max shows up with his nephew. (laughs) You're right. Yeah. Arthur is the one forcing the physical confrontation. Yes, yes. It's not like somebody held a gun to his head and was like, you're going to fight me or you're going to die. Right. Arthur's the one who forces the situation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He 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 intentionally makes this choice and does not back down from it. He won't let Luther leave to the point that it must have been part of his deal when he sold the donut shop. He must have worked it out with Max that he and his like Arnold Schwarzenegger <laughs> style nephew are going to come and lock down this the, the building for him so that he can just fight Luther. And, yeah, and, and actually, I think the clues are there to support the idea that it was part of the deal because we learn at the end of the show that the amount that Mac or that Arthur sold the donut shop for is quite a bit less than what Max was offering in a different scene of the play. Yeah. So you, you can sort of fill in the pieces and say Arthur's like, oh, okay, if we if we do a deal at this amount of money, would you and it's like his co- Max's cousin or his nephew or something, would you two come and help me win this fight? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> but then after after they stop Kevin from intervening in the fight, after Kevin Carol, is like the muscle. Kevin's yeah. the one who's Kevin's the one who does all the violent beating up and the finger cutting off. Luther's just the money man, the sort of mm-hmm. the middle manager. So yeah. Arthur uses Max and Kivel or the whatever the Russian uh, nephew of Max to mm-hmm. s- basically stop Kevin the muscle from interfering, so it can be just Arthur and Luther fighting. 
And what follows in the script, I'm I'm a bit of a stage combat nerd, and <laughs> I <laughs> it's a it's a really well written uh, stage combat. Um, and 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 not just like from a choreography standpoint, but from a storytelling standpoint. They, um, Tracy Letts notices three different beats in this fight where where uh, just the the mo- emotions that they all go- that uh, Luther and Arthur go through of like, well, I mean, <laughs> Luther's going to win. This is like what the stage directions say. Luther's going to win this. He's fitter. He's younger. It's going to win. And then they find out halfway through that. Oh, we're equals. And then all of a sudden, like something comes out of Arthur and Arthur wins the fight. It's like a, it's a really, uh, it's a dramatic fight scene. <laughs> it's, it's, yeah, it's, and it's supposed to be pretty visceral. The, the initial yeah. stage directions describe this, this fight's supposed to take a long time. It doesn't involve much talking at all. There's lots of sweat and blood and pain involved. And at the end, even though Arthur ultimately is the one who wins, partially because Tracy Letts has written a little bit of a cheat code into Luther's character. He's got uh-huh, yep. like a, like a hernia or like something. Like an ulcer. Yeah. An ulcer. You're right. Yeah, it's an ulcer. So he, so Arthur can kind of use that to his advantage. But even at the end of the fight, once Arthur's won, they're both pretty physically staggered, hurt to the point where Luther needs to go to the hospital and Arthur knocks himself unconscious once they leave or falls unconscious. I mean, yeah. What do you think it says about the space? Um, back to our comments about the space and the journey of the space along with Arthur. This, this, the, the, at least the stage directions call for things to be broken in this fight. Like articles from the shop are used to smash against other people, and, and, and the, both the characters end up quite bloody, so there's probably some blood around on the set. What does it say about, uh, as we've been kind of discussing the progression of this shop, what does this fight towards the end of uh, Arthur's possession of the shop say to you? Well, it's interesting because, like we've discussed, the fight is totally unnecessary. It, yeah. They can walk away with their money, and Arthur would still be the hero. In fact, that's a very realistic end to this play. Arthur sells the shop and uses the money to pay off Franco's debts. I mean, that end of the show, Arthur's still the good guy. Franco's still out of trouble. Arthur still had to sacrifice something. So the fact that the fight happens, it has to speak to its necessity in Arthur's character development. Because in the plot, it's unnecessary. And in fact, the fact that it's unnecessary, I think, is important. Arthur is making a choice to confront all of his fears at the same time. (laughs) His fear of dating after losing his wife first to divorce and then to cancer. His fear of doing anything besides running this donut shop. So he sells it. His fear of sacrificing himself for anyone else. So he sells the shop for Franco and his fear of physical confrontation. So he he's and the physical confrontation bit is the one that doesn't have to happen. But he's like, you know, he's I'm gonna do it. If yeah. I'm gonna face all these fears and move on in my life, I'm gonna get them all over with at one time. <laughs> and so he does. And so the conflict happens inside this place of safety, this place that never changes. And it batters it up in the way that it was battered up at the beginning of the show, but now for the sake of someone else, not just the result of a random assault. Yeah, now now through the choice of Arthur, as opposed to uh, him him not making a choice and someone else acting against him. That's right. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's so interesting that we don't get to be involved in the whatever happens between Arthur and Randy 
isn't it? I mean, I don't know if it's just a length thing, but they have sort of one awkward conversation where Arthur now has realized that Randy's interested in him due to Franco's prompting and is sort of trying to flirt back. It doesn't go very well. And then after that, Randy's almost not involved until we hear uh, by the very last scene when she finally comes back that, oh, he called her and they've been on a couple dates and I guess they're going steady now or, mm-hmm. you know, whatever. Isn't it odd that we don't, we're not, we don't get to see that? Why are we not involved in that? <laughs> yeah, yeah. The, the most that we get towards the end of the play is like meaningful eye contact with them. <laughs> like there's like meaningful eye contact and then she makes the call me uh, hand symbol so that we know that there's there's something more happening there. And Arthur tells us what has happened. That's true, yeah, yeah, yeah. But but I I, I think it, I think it's because that that's not the the focal point of this story. <laughs> Do dating mean, Randy's just the side quest. <laughs> yeah, sorry, sorry, Officer Randy, you're a great character. But I think the the thing that we're focusing on, at least with the within the the brackets of this plot, is uh, Arthur and Franco's relationship and the effect that Franco has on Arthur's world. I think uh, this. I mean, this is maybe a bit bit uh, water under the bridge, but. Do we are we do you agree that Arthur is the main protagonist of this play? Yeah, that's almost that, yeah. that's un, <laughs> unarguable, unquestionable. This is as clear a protagonist question as you'll ever find. And I do yeah. want to sort of correct myself because we actually do see Arthur try to call Randy one more time. That's true, and yeah. Almost ask her out, but then not again. You get like interrupted by uh, Lady Boyle who comes in for a donut yeah. again. Let's yeah. shift now to Lady, because I don't believe we've mentioned her yet. And that's interesting in and of itself. She is, uh, uh, I believe, a homeless woman who is also an alcoholic who comes into Arthur's Donut Shop daily, at least as many days as he chooses to be open every week, and gets a donut and coffee for free. Arthur provides for her, so that's why she comes in. Why is she in this play? Well, there's a couple reasons, uh, in, in in my opinion. One is one is a, a bit of a utilitarian one. She's kind of used as an oracle in this play. Um, she she's the one who kind of tells him the 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 big line. I think you know what you have to do. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and that's the scene that cues him up to sell the shop and have the fight with Luther. Um, so she has that kind of clairvoyant wisdom character vibe to her. Um, how, however, on a bit more real life note, she's also the one character that kind of leaves you feeling some uh, some of the stakes that uh, Arthur had to go through to sell this shop. That she's the one, she is one of the characters who viscerally feels the loss of this shop. She's she's uh, crying nearly unconsolably towards the end of the play that Max is going to take over the shop. <laughs> so so she's she stands she she gives us a bit of a, a consequence. For uh, for what happens for for Arthur's choice, like that there there was something he needed to balance in making that choice. Yeah, there's also the fact that because we can see that Arthur provides free food and coffee for Lady when she needs it or when she wants it, we can see that even though he's this sort of stagnant, stuck in his ways, fearful character, he's not an unkind. That doesn't cause him to be like. Ebenezer Scrooge or anything. He's still yeah. kind and still cares for his regulars. He wants to take care of this person. So we get that little side of Arthur's character as well. I also find it interesting. I think she might be one of the first people that Arthur has a a voluntary conversation about his daughter with. 
Ooh, that's interesting. Yeah. Yeah, they do have that come like it's a camaraderie scene where they both talk about their kids for a little bit, and and uh, we find out that uh, Lady Boyle has lost, has outlived three of her children, three of her four children. Yeah, Franco has tried to get Arthur to talk about his family a couple of times, and Arthur shut him down, and typically shut him down sort of angrily. And as we've said, the fact that Franco involves Arthur's daughter in their sort of big grand scheme for the donut shop is what causes Arthur to shut it down, causes the big confrontation. Now, Arthur has told us, the audience, about what's gone on with his daughter a couple of times, but I believe... Lady is the person, maybe, that he takes sort of the first tentative steps into doing something uncomfortable for him. Hmm, and mm-hmm. it's uh, it's sort of a low-stakes individual. It's not somebody he's potentially interested in pursuing a further relationship with, like Randy. It's not somebody that's going to prompt him to continue and try to do more crazy things, like Franco is, right? It's not somebody that has some authority in his life, like the other police officer, James, is. It's not uh, a dear, longtime friend who may cease to be his friend or whatever, like Max, the neighbor, is. This is a person that just comes into the shop. She's friendly. She's sometimes drunk, you know? And so this is a person that Arthur maybe takes that first tentative steps and says, okay, I'm going to do something I don't want to do that. I'm going to do something I don't do, which Mm -hmm. is talk about my daughter. And this might be a way to break that ice in a small way. And that maybe is the first rolling stone down the hill that causes the avalanche of the end. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I definitely agree with that. I don't want to steal any of her thunder, but it's also noticeable that that it, it's during the drought of without being with Franco. <laughs> like it's it's that this interaction takes place after he's experienced what it's like to kind of re- talk more, be around people more, and 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 this scene she shows up uh, after after Franco has left. So it's in this this drought of interaction that he's like, okay. Maybe I do need to take intentional steps. So, so, and, and, and ends up trusting her with that interaction. This play is a comedy. Yeah. <laughs> We've discussed it as a sort of very serious drama about an internal, gotta change, gotta, <laughs> I have all this terrible stuff happen to me and now I've gotta move forward in my life and people get their fingers cut off and there's a, a violent <laughs> fight at the end. Yeah. But it, through and through, the play's a comedy. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. And and a lot of the comedy is around Arthur and Franco still. But but uh, I mean, it's no surprise that this play got turned into a sitcom uh, because it is it is it, it, it is that <laughs> in some ways. Like it's a shop. People come in and out through the door, have their little scene and go out. And then you refocus on the main characters that happens over and over throughout this play. And just like two or three acts, this play just keeps incorporating these little stories from everyone. And it's it's hilarious throughout the scene that we mentioned where Max and Kirill come in to hold Kevin back is a hilarious scene. Because old old Russian Max comes in and says, I'm going to keep you from fighting. I'm, he's talking to Kevin. I'm going to keep you from fighting Arthur. And then he's like, yeah, okay, I'm going to fight this guy. And he's like, well, and then my nephew is going to keep you from fighting me. <laughs> and this <laughs> and he's, tank the, the comes in the room. This, yeah, this tank, this enormous <laughs> golem of a human being that comes in and sort of scares the whole room. There's lots of, I mean, the characters are funny in their own way, right? Randy, the cop, is this sort of 
very obviously interested in Arthur and a little bit uncomfortable that she's interested in Arthur. Yeah. Uh, but then she has a, sort of a classic comedy moment where Arthur's not returning her affections and so she sort of lashes out at her police partner like, clearly he's not interested in talking to us. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Speaking of the fellow police officer, he, uh, I think I mentioned he comes in in like a Trekkie outfit and there's a lot of back and forth around like <laughs> teasing him for where wearing pointed ears and he's like I don't wear pointed ears uh, so it's 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 a play full of good comedy both situational and just character based yeah because of course the core of the comedy is the relationship between Arthur and Franco I love that at the beginning of this conversation you described it as sort of odd couple set in a donut shop because <laughs> yeah. in some ways it it's their differing worldviews their differing personalities that cause so much of the character based comedy of these two just interacting and then some really really witty dialogue writing mm-hmm. some just high level jokes that land so stinking well yeah yeah the, the the kind of patter back and forth between Arthur and Franco must just be so much fun for actors to get to engage with because it is just a some of the scenes are just like hip fire back and forth between the two of them and uh and and it, it's just got to be so much fun that's that's kind of why at the in the context I mentioned that it's it must be done frequently in regional houses because it is it's it's an accessible play that's so much fun for each of these uh you know kind of character actor parts for you to dig into Yeah, and the first interaction you get with Franco is maybe the best three minutes, five minutes of dialogue in the whole show. His quote-unquote interview is amazing. It's just this rolling joke after rolling joke that lands because both of these guys know they're in an odd situation and yet somehow it resolves itself. Like Franco goes on this whole spiel about how in his interview about how Arthur's being unfair or even sort of contributing to African-American obesity in the community by offering yeah. donuts because there's no healthy alternatives in the community. He, he basically rails against Arthur providing donuts at his interview to work at a donut shop. <laughs> so hire me to sell your donuts. <laughs> and at one point, even Arthur's like, wait a minute, wait a minute. Isn't this your job interview? <laughs> Franco goes, yeah, it is. How am I doing? <laughs> <laughs> Pretty well. <laughs> Pretty well, actually. You know, yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, it's 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 full of those those kind of beautiful touching moments of, of comedy, but then also touching moments of kind of poignancy between these two characters. So it's a it's a fair balance, as all good comedies are, between deep dramatic content and just like hold your stomach laughability. And because it's funny, we're prepared to witness the brutality of the violence at the climax we're not depressed and and just horribly upset after having seen you know an hour and a half of upsetting terrible drama and then having it culminate in terrible violence it's not titus andronicus right Right. (laughs) it's funny and then we're in a place to witness and experience the violence knowing that we're going to return to the sort of safety of tracy Lett's comic writing Mm-hmm. And these and the characters that we've come to trust and love and want to see uh, continue to be friends. Well, that's all the time we have to talk about this one, I think. Uh, this is a great little play. I hope that folks out there hear this and decide that they want to go do it because I think it, yeah. it has a lot of potential to have life in whatever community you're in at your local theater. 
Yeah, absolutely. I if you if you do this play or if you've done this play, watched it, read it, been a part of it in any way, we'd love to keep talking with you about this play. So if there's anything we missed or anything you want to talk about, find us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter with the username at NoScript Podcast or at Gmail, noscriptpodcast at gmail.com. We'd love to keep talking about superior donuts with you. If you've liked this episode or any of our other episodes, please tell people you know about it. Tell your friends, tell people in your drama department, tell people at your community theater. Help people who like scripts find the podcast. We are hosted on Podbean, but you can also find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or we post a link to the new episode on Facebook every Monday. That's an easy way to find us, too. Yeah. So until next week, when you see that link, and we'll be talking about another play, I'm Jackson Nikolai. I'm Jacob Mann Christensen. Thanks for joining us on No Script. We'll see ya.